Welcome back to Bible time, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9. We're going to step back here and take a close look at this verse. We touched on it in our studies on the apostolic ministry that we launched into from verse 6, um, but we haven't really closely looked at it, so we're going to do that today, Lord willing. It says here in our text, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Father, in Jesus' name, please use this message, Lord, in a special way. Lord, I pray for a revival of old-time gospel labor. In Jesus' name and for Christ's sake, amen. Proverbs 14.23 says, In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury, which means poverty. Penury is when you have ran out of pennies. Okay, so the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury, but in much labor... There is profit. And we think that the gospel ministry is all about talking. We think that for somebody to do the gospel, um, they should just get up and talk. This is pretty common. Um, a lot of backcountry churches, for example, will pay a pastor based on how many minutes he preaches. So if they want him to preach for a half hour to an hour three times a week, then they feel like $150 a week is a pretty good salary for um, that preacher, which in our current economy is different than in other places. But uh, basically, uh, right, what, whenever I saw that happening, $150 a week was not enough for a working man to buy enough food to feed his family uh, with two kids and a wife. And so most um, such pastors would <coughs> have no choice but to um, work another job. That's not necessarily bad. That can be a good thing. But we're going to look into this labor of the gospel a little bit. We need to look at this in a little bit more detail. There's two prevailing ideas. As with most, with most truth, there's usually two prevailing ideas a wrong extreme on the left and a wrong extreme on the right. But there's two prevailing ideas. One idea is that a pastor that doesn't work, and they define that work as going out and having a job that um, produces economically tradable goods and provide and produces monetary gain, that a pastor that does not do that and produce his own monetary gain is not worth his salt and is just a money grubber. And the other prevailing thought is that since the pastor gets up and preaches and they get this like almost priesthood idea where the pastor is their priest and their mediator between God and man, that therefore just having a pastor means that they should bend over backwards and provide everything for him and make his life um, rosy. And they're going to just give him whatever salary he wants and, and pump it up as <coughs> as much as they can. Try and gain favor with God, basically, by um, feathering their pastor's bed. <coughs> Both extremes are wrong. We're going to look at the Bible and what the Bible says about gospel labor here today. Again, our text says, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. There's four parts to this text. The first part deals with labor and travail. The second part deals with the time frame of the labor and travail, night and day. The third part of this text deals with the purpose for the night and day labor and travail, and that is to not be chargeable. And the fourth part of this text brings home the actual work that is taking place, the finished product of the gospel labor, and that is that they preached the gospel. There's a concept in manufacturing, um, some people call it throughput. There's a concept of delivering a finished good. You can work all day at a doll factory, and if you make 25,000 doll legs, but you never make any doll bodies or doll arms or doll heads or doll, doll eyeballs, or any other parts of the doll, then you will not have a sellable product. You're going to have to find somebody to sell doll legs to. You're going to have a huge overstock inventory in one area and have um, no sellable goods. Now, you can work all day long. You can hire a 100 laborers. You can hire a 1,000 laborers to build legs for dolls. 
But if you don't build the other parts of the doll, you will not have a sellable good. Does that make sense today? If you build cars for a living and you can build all of the car except the transmission and you have all these cars sitting in your lot without transmissions in them, will anybody buy them? We saw this recently with the whole um, chip trip chip crisis. There were these chips, microchips that needed to go in vehicles, and there was a shortage of them. And all these vehicle manufacturers could not get these microchips, and there were parking lots full of trucks that needed tiny little bitty microchips. They had tires, they had engines or motors, they had um, transmissions, they had wheels. They had everything that was needed to go except that one tiny chip, and they were not sellable. They were useless. They were sitting in the parking lot, and they were, they, were le- they were worth less than the weight in scrap because it would have cost somebody to take them to the scrapyard. Until they could get the chips, they were useless. And the gospel, the preaching of the gospel is the result. It is the throughput of gospel labor. Do you hear me today? It is, the, it is the finished result of gospel labor. And we're going to look at that gospel labor today, the labor of the gospel. And the end result, the finished package that is presented to people, just like this, just like this Bible time, the finished package is the result of the labor in the gospel. The labor behind the preaching is more important than the preaching. Preaching that lacks the labor behind it is dead, and it's letter, and it's killing. It's kind of like also, <coughs> for you school kids that are here, um, it's kind of like this. Uh, the finished product that you're looking for in a week, in every given week, is finished tests. What some people would call paces, or light units, or whatever you call the section of study that you're doing. Finished tests that show that you did your work and that you learned something is what you're trying to get. But if all you ever do is tests and you don't do the labor behind the tests, you will end up with an inadequate education and you'll also end up um, blowing out and your tests will end up reflecting the lack of labor behind them. Is that true? Huh? Is that true? Okay, if we want to see God do work in our land, we've got to get back to good old-fashioned gospel labor, the labor of the gospel. So here, let's look at the labor and travail of the gospel here. There's a message um, I used to preach quite a bit um, years ago called the Four Cornerstones of Ministry. I'd at least allude to it, and this it just pops up right here. It always comes up whenever you start dealing with this kind of stuff <coughs> because it's Bible. Um, so let's go to Philippians 2.30 as we kick this thing off here. And Lord, we just ask you to help us again. Help us to understand your word and give us a will and a desire to work, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Philippians 2.30 is speaking of Epaphras. Um, back in verse 25, he's sending Epaphroditus, actually, Epaphroditus, my brother, and says in verse 27, for indeed he was sick nigh unto death. And then he says in verse 30, because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Now, Epaphroditus, if you study history and you go back and look at what archaeologists have uncovered, was the um, Paul's main OSHA administrator. He handled all the material safety data sheets, and whenever they went into a new city, he made sure that Paul had security teams and had his back covered and would never get in trouble and never get hurt. How many of you think that sounds right? No, no, not even close. So what was Epaphroditus' work in the gospel? Was it white-collar work behind a desk? Was it blue-collar work sitting at a giant sewing machine that's sewing tents together and trying to keep his fingers out of the needles? It was neither of the kind. Let's look at what the work of Epaphroditus was, um, what the work of Epaphroditus was here in Colossians 4. Go there quickly. I'm going to try and keep this down, let my throat heal. Please continue to pray for my throat, my voice. Colossians 4.12 says, Epaphras, 
Now, this Epaphras is different than that Epaphroditus, but here is some of that work that he was doing for Christ. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that ye may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. So the first one on the list here is prayer. The first gospel labor is prayer. It's the first cornerstone of ministry. And Epaphroditus was sick, had worked himself sick in the work of Christ. One of those works is prayer. Go to 2 Timothy. And let's look at another one of the gospel labors. 2 Timothy 4, 5. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. And by the way, that watch thou in all things is dealing with prayer. And then he says, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. Now we all know that the work, and I'm going to be funny again here, be facetious. The work of an evangelist is making flyers with great big pictures of his face with the light gleaming off of his teeth right? And sending out bulletins about all the thousands of people that he's won to the Lord and doing fundraisers and going around and preaching when there's enough people present. As long as you can get at least a few thousand people minimum, he might come to that event if there's enough people to get enough exposure. He also works in marketing, right? And trying to get people to think more highly of what he's doing. Often a really good evangelist will have a whole team of marketing experts who will work with him to make sure the newspapers are saying the right things about him and that the right information is going out on the blogs and Facebook. And that's the work of an evangelist, right? Who said no? You did? What's the work of an evangelist? Preaching the gospel. But what is it to who? There's only one evangelist mentioned in the Bible as an evangelist where God titles him as an evangelist. And it says, Philip the evangelist was sent down through the desert, and there he found the Ethiopian eunuch, and he led him to Christ. We also find Philip the Evangelist leading most of Samaria to Christ. And then later in his life, we find him living um, <coughs> living northwest of Jerusalem. Paul stopped there. I forgot the name of his little town. But um, in any case, he was an evangelist. The work of an evangelist is not the work of going church to church, preaching to church people. That is what modern America calls an evangelist, and that is not a biblical evangelist. That has nothing to do with biblical evangelism. An evangelist is somebody that goes to lost people and preaches the gospel to them so that they'll be saved, whether that's door to door or on the street. We call them street preachers in America. Street preachers are biblical evangelists if they're biblically street preaching. There are a lot of unbiblical street preaching going on in the name of street preaching. But if they're preaching biblically and they're preaching the biblical gospel, they're an evangelist. And then people that go door to door and knock on those doors, they're doing the work of an evangelist telling people about Christ. And they stop people at the gas station and at the grocery store and everywhere they're at. Um, they're doing the work of an evangelist. You can do the work of an evangelist in your workplace. Maybe you're the guy sewing the giant tents together with a giant sewing machine. And while you're working there, when break, um, when break time happens, you're ready to talk to people in the break room about the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ and how he saved you, that would be doing the work of an evangelist. So the first work here that God calls labor in the Bible, specifically pertaining to the gospel, is prayer. The second work that God mentions is evangelism, at least in this list. Um, in fact, I would usually order this a little bit different. Go to 2 Timothy. I believe it's in chapter 2. I neglected to write down the reference on this one. It's 2.15. And this is the one I usually do second. I've even got a note in my Bible right here. Second cornerstone. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What did it just call the man that was told to study? What did it call him? Listen up. What did it call him? Second Timothy 2.15. A what? No, look at it. Read it again. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman 
that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, this would be the second cornerstone usually. So you have prayer, study of God's word, and evangelism. And this study of God's word is something that's very neglected today. Now, most people that hold a church office will study something. A deacon will study tax law, a caretaker. <coughs> excuse me, may study lawnmowers to figure out, to read the reviews and find out what the best lawnmower is for the church and get the best value for the money so that they practice good stewardship at the church house. And then you might have somebody at the church that's in the sound booth and he might study hard in all sound technology type of stuff and how sound travels and sound distribution and sound wires and cables and um, limiters and all the other things that you got to have that go into all that stuff of which I know very little. Um, All of that may be studied out and the pastor often will study. And most of the time pastors in today's churches, they'll go in and they'll study their, um, denominational publications that get sent to them monthly or quarterly. And they'll go in and they'll study their books about the Bible and they'll go in and study dictionaries about the Bible. And they'll go in and study illustration books that tell them all kinds of stories, neat stories, funny stories, simple stories, heartfelt stories that kind of illustrate an idea that they want to preach from, uh, preach about in the Bible so that they can grab people's minds and get their imaginations with the Uh, with their stories, with their illustrations. And they'll try and get like, they'll tell about how Johnny had a doggy and Johnny's doggy ran away and Johnny cried bitter tears for his doggy. And then one day the doggy came back. And by that time, the whole congregation is in tears with the preacher. And about that time, he can make it relate to something in the Bible that he wants to teach his congregation. And the main point um, by and large in American churches is the illustration and not the, and not the word of God. People walk away remembering illustrations and they have forgotten what the, what the illustration actually was supposed to teach them because all their time was spent on the illustrations. Illustrations can be a good thing, but that's not the purpose of study. What did he tell Timothy to study here in second Timothy two? He says, study to show thyself approved But if you look back up at what he's talking about, he says, of these things, put them in remembrance. And if you keep on backing up, he's putting them in remembrance of the gospel and of the word of God. And the things that thou hast heard of me, says in verse 2, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who who shall be able to teach others also. And the Bible talks, and it says back in verse 13, um, hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and in love and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And he um, speaks of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, verse 11, whereunto I am appointed a preacher. So the study of God's word is considered work. Now, if you go in and you're told to study your math, listen to me carefully today. I'm trying to be really simple and we're just going to try and get this exactly right and learn from it today. If you're supposed to study math and you go in and study the leaves blowing in the tree outside your window for three hours and you study carefully, you look at every leaf that you can look at and you watch the light going across the leaves and you draw pictures of the leaves and of the trees on your paper and you think about the leaves and you try and guess how many leaves there are and how much they weigh and how much force that there is in the wind that's making the leaves move that way, judging by how much tension it appears to be putting on the branches and you put out all kinds of little formulas and and try and make observations about the tree and your teacher comes in and once your math that you had three hours to study and they look at your math paper and it's got pictures of trees and leaves all over it, are they going to be happy? No. So study isn't valuable in and of itself. Study is only valuable if it stays on its topic. And here, study of the word of God is by God considered the work, a work of the gospel. We have prayer. We have study. We have evangelism, telling people about Jesus. And then go to Galatians 4 and verse 9, and we'll see the fourth cornerstone here, without which you have an anemic church which means a church that doesn't have enough life in it 
to do anything. Galatians 4, 9, here he says, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice for I stand in doubt of you. And when he goes on down, he's teaching them, look at verse 30, nevertheless, what saith the scripture? So here Paul is teaching the Bible to saved people, people that he's wondering if they are really saved because they're departing from the faith. And this is the aspect of ministry that is often referred to as discipleship. (coughs) Now, this discipleship ministry, this is a fourth part of the gospel labor. And again, this is the gospel labor is all its finished package is seen in the preaching of the gospel. But the labor that goes into the preaching of the gospel is often more important than the final package of the preached gospel. And if you think that's wrong, then I don't know what to do for you. Now, some of you would say that's ridiculous. A man can get up and say a bunch of error and he doesn't quote the right scriptures. He only knows one Bible verse. He'll be powerless. And in fact, history has proven exactly the opposite. I remember a story about a black man who was was freed from slavery following the Civil War. And they asked him, what are you going to do? And he said, God called me to be a preacher. And they laughed at him and they said, you old fool, you don't even know how to read. How are you going to be a preacher? And he said, God called me. I'm going to go. And so he walked and he walked and he walked and he came to his city one day. And when he got there, um, the Lord told him, go over there in that park. And there was an awning over there. And he went under the awning and the Lord told him, preach. And so he set up right there and he started preaching and he preached his heart out that night. And one drunk man came, heard him preaching and wandered into the awning and sat down and laughed at him and mocked him. And then walked away at the end of it. But the old black man, he said, God, you called me to preach. You told me to preach and I came here to preach and I've tried to obey you. And he thanked the Lord and he went to sleep and he got up the next day and spent time with the Lord and doing the labor of the gospel in the background. Probably the only one he really could do was pray. And that night he got back up in the awning and that night that drunk was back with about 12 of his friends. And this time, they all hee-hawed and laughed except the first drunk, and he sat there under conviction. And the next night that this happened again, the 12 were back with half the city, and they were all under conviction. And the next night, half the city was under conviction, and the meetings went on, and they went on, and they went on. And this man had no illustrations. He had no wisdom of man's words, kind of like this message today seems kind of flat to me. I don't have much voice. I don't have much power, but I'm praying that God will use it to illustrate these truths to your heart and open up your understanding today of the need for gospel labor and this This man that labored in the gospel, but did not have the finesse. He did not have the teaching, but he knew a few Bible verses and he prayed and he sought God's face. He got with God in his quiet time and God honored him openly um, whenever he got up to preach the gospel. Now there's another labor that I want to look at in Galatians 3.10. There's a different kind of labor. This is, it says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So all these Saturday worshipers out here that are trying to gain favor with God, listen, if you want to take Saturday as a special day, help yourself. But if you think that you're keeping the law by doing it, you are deluded. And you need to go and get a red heifer and go to Jerusalem and get the high priest to sprinkle the ashes of the red heifer on you to make you clean. You need to proselytize yourself and keep the whole law. That's what the Bible says right here. It says, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So there is a gospel labor that is obedience to Christ and obedience to his pattern that he set forth to us. And then there is a false religious labor, a law keeping labor, a works based labor that is designed to puff up my own flesh and make me think more highly of myself than I ought. And God says, if you are of the works of the law, you're under the curse. Um, Now let's go to Hebrews there. I think it's Hebrews 4. I forgot to write down the chapter on that one too. In fact, I didn't even write down Hebrews. I'm slipping. (coughs) 
Okay, 4.10. It says, He that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So here is another labor. And this labor of entering into the rest is presented to people who are religious, but who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the apostle writing this, um, the one that God used to write this, the author of Hebrews, here is saying to labor to enter into that rest. Now that would seem contradictory, but if you actually look at what that labor is, if go back here to verse 18 and 19 of the previous chapter, Hebrews 3, and to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, 4 verse 1, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them. Do you hear that today? The word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Do you know what this means today? We know from the scriptures that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But most modern preachers take that first part of the verse and they skip the to everyone that believeth. And they say the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So if you can preach the gospel... Um, under any pretense and any circumstance with any amount of preparedness or lack of preparedness. It's the gospel that has the power and therefore it's the gospel and it's profitable and such an idea is false. Do you hear me today? Such an idea is false. There is a labor involved in the gospel, both in the preaching and the hearing of the gospel. There's a labor that is designed by God and required by God to give power to the gospel. And then there is a labor designed by God and required by God in order to receive the gospel. And that labor is mentioned here in verse 10. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What does he immediately turn to once he mentions the labor? Who picked up on it? What? The word of God. That's right. So the labor then is in the word of God, which is quick and sharp and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now this is, a again, a double-edged thing because this labor applies to the lost. In order for a lost man to be saved, he has to do what? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But belief means putting your faith in God, which is trusting God's word. And the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So in order to believe, you must get in the word of God. But it says here at the start that just getting slapped up the side of the head with the sound waves of a preacher or maybe actually getting spit on by the preacher while he preaches it isn't enough to get you into heaven. You're not going to get it by osmosis. You don't just absorb the gospel. Just taking your kids to sit under the gospel isn't going to get them saved. There has to be an application of the truths of the gospel to the hearts of the people who are listening to the gospel in order for them to be saved. And therefore the Bible exhorts us to um, labor to enter into that rest. Do you understand that today? So there's a labor to enter into the rest, and that labor is a labor in the Word. It's not a labor of penance. It's not a labor of prayers. It's not a labor of church membership. It's not a labor of charity and giving and alms deeds. It's a labor of application of your heart to the Word of God. And it says here in chapter 4, verse 1, again, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering in, um, into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it, for unto 
us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So there's a labor of the gospel in preparation of the preacher preparing his heart and preparing his message by in the word of God in prayer and in study and then a labor of evangelizing and preaching it to the lost and of discipling preaching it to the saved and all of those labors are required for the work of the gospel to go forward but all of that labor is in vain if the recipient does not labor himself to enter into his rest. Jesus said that the gospel is like a seed going into the ground, which is the equivalent of the heart of man. And that the gospel reacts in the, to the ground and the ground to the gospel. The heart of man reacts to the gospel and the gospel to the heart of man. What your, how your heart responds to the gospel determines how God will deal with you. So when that gospel is, when that ground is hard, whose job is it to plow up the ground? I exhort you to find the scripture that says, break up the fallow ground of your hearts, saith the Lord. And then he says, so in righteousness, and he goes on talking about how that you can reverse the situation of a hard heart. Did you know that no preacher on earth can change a hard heart into a soft heart? It doesn't matter how hard that preacher works. Now, the job of softening a heart is given to mankind by God. And how does God intend for man to soften his heart? Can you soften your heart by reading Aristotle and Plato? Can you soften your heart by giving to the poor? Can you soften your heart by attending church? None of those things can soften your heart. The only thing that can soften your heart is careful attendance to the word of God. A careful studying and hearing and heeding of the word of God. Responding to the light of the word as God gives it to you. And as this applies to a lost person, so does it also apply to a saved person. The saved person must also apply his heart to the gospel in order to enter into the rest. And the rest of the saved person is to cease from his own works and enter into the works of Christ, the labors of Christ in the gospel. Instead of trying to do it in his way, his time, his strength, his power. And the only way that that man will accomplish such a thing is to apply the same truth that is required for salvation to that of sanctification, to a daily sanctification of walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Laboring to enter into that rest is a labor that must be done in the Word of God and in careful attendance to the Word of God. If you do not for yourself study that book, you will not grow. It doesn't matter how good a preacher you sit under. I knew a lot of kids growing up whose parents um, saw problems in their kids' lives. And in order to solve those problems, they would jump from church to church to church, trying to find a better preacher, a better pastor, better child, children's programs, whatever they could find. They would go to seminars and, and Bible institutes and everything they could do. They'd sign their kids up for everything. And as a last stopgap effort, in the case of extreme rebellion, a lot of them would try and get their children signed up to work at headquarters of a major ministry I was familiar with growing up, where there was a fairly godly man that was working there. And they would send their young people up there, hoping that this godly man would be able to reverse years of rebellion in a couple short months. And their hope was unfounded. The problem is that that child had a hard heart. That child would not attend to no understanding. He would not himself, herself, she would not get in the Bible, in the word of God for themselves and take heed to it in their heart and apply the truths to their own heart and let God deal with them in their own heart. And because of that, they had a hard heart and nobody could say anything to help them. Unfortunately, a lot of those parents then became bitter at every church, every Bible institute, every program, every Every, every Christian school and every Christian um, 
ministry that they'd ever sent their child to to be rescued, and then they would find fault with all these other groups, while at the same time somehow excusing themselves who God had given the primary responsibility of raising that child. And they would quote verses and twist them out of context to give themselves excuses, but then they would condemn and castigate every ministry that they ever thought was good because their child didn't turn out. The problem was the lack of of the heart going towards God. If your heart does not go towards God, you will not go towards God. And that's just the end of that whole story. So there's a labor of the gospel in the preparation of the word of God. There's a labor in the gospel of the dissemination of the word of God, getting it out to people. There's a labor of the gospel in the hearing of the word of God amongst the lost to to come to a place of saving faith. And there is a labor of the gospel amongst the saved in applying the word of God to the heart in order to be changed. And in If you will do this, lost or saved, Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest to your souls. He was not saying labor was bad. I always wondered about that. I always thought that Christ was saying, there's no labor if you come to me, it's all easy. And it never seemed to work out that way. So it always bothered me. Turns out I had a completely wrong idea about it. What he's saying is, all ye that are labor are now the ones he's calling to come. And if you're not laboring, then he's not calling you. Do you hear me? Now you think I've gone off the deep end, but he told those scribes and Pharisees, the harlots enter into the kingdom of heaven before you because they repented at the preaching of John and you would not repent afterwards when you saw them repent and you saw the change in their life, you wouldn't repent. And so you're still stuck in your condition. They refuse to labor. By the way, repentance is a labor. It's not a work, but repentance is actually, it's not a labor in and of itself. And as much as it is, um, repentance is an aligning of my perspective with God. God's perspective, a taking what God says and believing it about myself so that I see myself the way God sees me so that God can deal with me and I can deal with God and cry out for a mercy that I need in a manner that's appropriate. If I don't understand what I need, then I don't come to God right. If hell is a giant burning pit that I'm hung out over by random chance and God is some kind of karma-like being that's floating up there doing the lotus and he's looking down at you um, just deciding who he's going to pick, then you might say, yo, bro, can you get me out of this mess and save me from hell? And that might work. And he might say, sure, you've done enough good things. You've been nice to that widow woman. I'll pluck you up out of that fire. I'll take you to this nirvana-like heaven. And that's what a lot of people think that this salvation is. And it's nothing like that at all. The reality is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You are on your way to hell as a sinner because you have sinned and you are personally deserving of the just and righteous wrath of almighty God that will be poured out upon sinners. And whenever you recognize that, it's only the only way you will recognize that is through the scripture, applying the word of God to your help, to your heart, laboring to alter your mindset through the word of God, getting in the Bible and applying it to yourself. And if you come to that realization, it's as natural as a child crying out to its father for someone hanging over hell because of their sin to cry out, God be merciful unto me, a sinner, and to believe on the free gift of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, was buried and rose the third day so that he would take the price and the penalty for your sin on his own body and make accessible to you his own righteousness so that you can be saved. That salvation application does not come without labor. And this is where easy believism um, falls completely short. Easy believism offers people a labor-free cesarean section gospel. Born again by C-section. Not going through the birth canal. Not going through the travail. Not going through the labor. And the result is a bunch of stillborns. The result is a bunch of anemia in those that are uh, born in that manner because the fruit is harvested early. People don't like to watch people labor, honey. It's rough to be a birth coach. It's a lot harder to sit and stay with them for a 24-hour labor than it is to strap on your surgical gloves and chop the kid out. 
and sew the mom back up and go home and get a good night's rest. But it's better for the mom and it's better for the baby if it's humanly possible to let them go through the birth process together and for you to be there to aid and assist. But that takes being a servant. That takes being lowly. That takes you taking your hands off the situation and watching and praying. And most people are not willing to do that. So what we've done is we've turned out a bunch of baby meal chop shop surgeon evangelists to run all over the nation telling people to believe the gospel without taking them through the labor and without laboring themselves in the labor in the gospel labor that's at the background of effective gospel preaching. So moving on from there, let's look here at our Lord Jesus Christ and some of his labors. Jesus said, my father worketh hitherto I work. What work was Jesus doing when he said that? Now we know he was a carpenter's um, stepson. We know that Joseph was a carpenter and that Jesus had been raised as a carpenter. So we know Jesus had done that work. We know he'd probably taken out the trash. He'd probably, as a little boy, helped his mama with the laundry. He did all kinds of physical labor. But what labor was Jesus doing when the scribes and Pharisees were angry with him on the Sabbath day? And he said, my father worketh, hitherto I work. What work was he doing? Ministry. He was healing, he was preaching, he was praying, he was talking, he was teaching, he was walking, he was eating, he was sleeping, he was standing, he was sitting, he was, as we said, healing. He was doing all these things, casting out devils. But wait a second. In our culture, we don't see any of that as work. We call that ministry. We have a different work for it. By the way, do you know what ministry means? It means Working in service. It means a job of a servant. A servant ministers. Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant. And we are, we are to follow his example. Go to John 5, 36. <coughs> Jesus was speaking here of John. And he said, but I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish... The same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Go back to John 4.34. John 4.34. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Now verse, um, let's look at these other verses with it. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. Pay close attention to verse 38. I sent you to reap that whereupon ye bestowed no what? Labor. Other men what? Labored. And ye are entered into their labors. I sent you to reap that whereupon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. The only reaping that happens, happens after labor. The only true reaping that counts in eternity happens after labor. If you shortcut the labor, there will not be true reaping. And remember that the labor began with prayer, and then with study of God's word, and then evangelism, which is going out into the highways and hedges and compelling them to come in, going and finding people to tell about the gospel, and then with discipleship, which has to do with um, all the other works of pastoring work, teaching work, um, revivalist work, where you're going around um, pro proclaiming the word of God as a New Testament prophet who says the revelations God already gave us, which is what a prophet is. You can, we'll study it out more someday in detail. Go to John 9, 4. John 9, 4. He says, I must work here. The works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. So here's the urgency of our labor. But here Jesus Christ called what he did labor. Now the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. And Jesus Christ was not holding down a job. 
He did not have a job at the local factory. He was not tent making either. A lot of people love to quote Paul's tent making, and that's an important fact in the Bible, but, and we'll look at that here in a second. But Jesus was not tent making. Jesus was in full-time ministry. He wasn't always, but he was for three and a half years in full-time ministry. And Jesus' full-time ministry, he called work. Jesus' full-time ministry resulted um, in people believing, which we will see, and it was called work. We'll look at some of the aspects of that work here in a second. John 10, 37, go there quick. John 10, 37, if I do not the works of my father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. So Jesus said, there's something deeper than the words that I'm saying. Did you know that Jesus does not expect you to have blind faith in him? Jesus never asked anybody to have blind faith in him. He told them here, if you don't believe the words that I'm saying, believe the works that I'm doing. He said, I'm proving to you who I am by what I do. And what I do is showing you who I am. And because of what I do that shows you who I am, I want you to believe what I say. Because you can see what I do that proves who I am, I want you to believe what I say. And Jesus, when he preached, did not expect anyone to believe him because of his brilliant exegesis or his opulent oratory or anything else of the nature. Jesus did not expect people to believe him because he even because he spake as one having authority. Instead, he held up for the um, for them his works. He says, if you believe not my words, believe my works. And if you believe my works, believe who I am because of my works. And if you believe who I am because you've seen what I do, then believe also what I say. Now, that sounds almost like your talk talks louder than your walk talk or your walk talks louder than your talk talks would be the real way to say it the right way. Now, Matthew, let's go to Matthew 20 verse one. Go quickly. Matthew 20, verse 1, we're going to see the gospel here. Um, actually, we're not even going to stop there. We're going to skip. Go to Luke 9. I'll tell you about that one. Go to Luke 9, verse 62. In Matthew 20, verse 1, Jesus tells a parable of a husbandman who went out into the town square and hired laborers to work in his vineyard for a penny a day. God is looking for laborers. He's not looking for talkers. Do you hear me? In the talk, the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury, but in all labor, there is profit. God's looking for laborers. Now, our version of ministry today is talkers. We want Christian counselors to flap their mouths. We want missionaries who will talk, 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 talk. All they ever do is talk. And if they take time to labor in the gospel for a deeper work of God than, than, than what cheap talk gets, so most people will stop supporting them. We want evangelists who talk, 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 and run around to churches talk, 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 talking about all the things things that they've done, 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 but they're not actually doing. They're not laboring. They're not laboring in prayer. They're not laboring in the study of God's word. And they're not laboring in the highways and hedges. And they're not laboring in discipleship. They're just talk, talk, talking. All we want today is talking. The Bible says in the last days that men will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. We want our ears to be thumped with the sound waves of some flashy guy's voice yakking all the time. And that makes us feel like a ministry is really profitable whenever you hear the talk, talk, talk. You know, some of the most profitable ministries that have ever been seen on the face of the earth had nothing important to say. If you would have imagined getting a newsletter from Adoniram Judson after he'd been in jail for four months with his own excrement falling all over his body as his feet were tied up to a bamboo pole and his head and shoulders were left resting on the ground for weeks and months at a time and he had to eat gruel that his wife prepared him and brought him into that place to stay alive and he suffered all kinds of privation you would say wow what a lousy newsletter I don't feel I don't even feel like eating I feel like going and praying I'm going to cut this guy's support and find some that's doing something for God. Now, I already told you it's Adoniram Judson, or you probably would have agreed with that, but most people that know anything about missions know that Adoniram Judson um, is responsible for 
<coughs> the word of God being translated into the Burmese and many, many, many Burmese souls eventually came to Christ after his death. But most of the time, gospel labors are unseen and the results will often not accompany the laborer. Do you remember the verse we read where it says others have labored and ye have entered into their labors? That's often how God does it. He sends a reaper to follow a sower and a sower to precede the reaper. And the labor of the sower is as necessary, is more necessary than the labor of the reaper. But because without the, that's where it all starts. But without the reaper, the sower would have no rejoicing. So the reaper is also important. Now he, Christ hires labors. Let's look at Luke nine sixty two. And Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here the gospel is likened to a plow. The work of the gospel is likened to that of a plow boy. How many pastors do you think would sign up for being pastor today? If their first day at seminary, they were put behind a giant stinky mule with an old plow and a 50 acre field of Missouri rocks to plow up and they said when you finish this I want you to memorize 10 verses in the scripture and pray until midnight we'll be up at 4 o'clock tomorrow to plow again you wouldn't find many people in the pastorate would you but the Bible relates the gospel work to the work of a plow. It's a deep work, it's a heavy work there's two things that have happened in our nation number one the hatred of the hard work has led to a forsaking of the gospel plow and the shallowness of our people has led to a despising of those that labor at the gospel plow, which has ran many of them away or just left many people that would labor in the gospel working a day job when they should be working in the gospel because people don't value their labor in the gospel. There are people that in fact... I've, I met one person that it may be true of him that God crippled him in order to allow him to minister to his people in the gospel plow of prayer because he was, he could, nobody would value his ministry. Now, he didn't say it that way. That's purely my observation. But he had no way to support himself until he was so crippled that he ended up unable to work and get this on government handouts. How about that? Living on disability. One of the least esteemed people in his church. And amongst all the people that we were around, most people thought nothing of the man, but the man was a prayer. And he would pray and pray and pray. Now, if I've misjudged him and he was actually lazy, I'm sorry for that. And the Lord will take... We'll fix that later at the judgment. But in any case, most people do not value the ask the gospel plow labor that goes into the gospel being preached. Most people just want the flashy package, the finished deal. And you know, in this day, if we, most people, when they go out and buy Christmas presents today, oh boy, we're running out of time. Help us, Lord. Most people, when they go out and buy Christmas presents today, they're more concerned about the package than the insides. And if the poor kid pulls out his toy and the wheels fall off, they say, oh, Oh, well, and they throw it in the trash. What a mess that is. But that's how our churches are, too. That's the condition of spirituality in America to do today as well. We want a flashy package gospel with no wheels on it. And we've got to get back to the gospel labor if we're going to see God move in any way that's deep. In order to see real fruit, you've got to get through the plow pan. You've got to get that plow out and you've got to dig a little deeper and you've got to break up that fallow ground. And that's a two-sided job. The preacher's got to prepare the message and the people have to prepare their hearts to hear the message. And of course, we do pray that God will prepare their hearts. But how does he do that? By striking the fear of God in their hearts and getting them to start thinking about their eternity and thinking about the Bible and thinking about where they're going. And that in and of itself is breaking up the plow pan of their heart because they're getting ready to attend to the gospel. Luke 10, 2 says, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, our second part of this verse, that was just the first of four parts. We'll blitz through these other three parts of this verse, though. Um, pay close attention here. The second part here is night and day. Go back to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, we'll get to this later. 
he says in verse 9 that they're rendering thanks to God. And he says, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face. Um, so here they were praying night and day. There's not a lot of labor that can be done in candle countries that don't have electricity that um, apart from prayer, uh, mostly prayers about all that they could do. Maybe if they could get a candle, if they had the means to get a candle, they could stay up late reading a parchment or doing something like that. But there wasn't a whole lot of work that they can do. Pretty hard to mend nets in the dark with a candle. It doesn't pan out very well or to make tents or whatever else they did. They did a little bit of that kind of labor, but the night labor is primarily a prayer labor. Mark 427, go to Mark 427. And while you're going there, um, Jesus talked about the power of darkness um, and the hour of darkness. And it's interesting that darkness is at its greatest point of power or sin is at its greatest power during darkness. But the Christian is in his greatest place of power in the darkness. Sin is at its greatest moment of power, and the Christian is in his greatest place of power in the darkness. Don't let artificial light steal the night from you. The night is an important season, and it's a season that we're to be laboring there's a time for sleep, but there's a time for watching and waiting. Mark four twenty seven says, um, look at verse 26, and he said, So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. Does that not illustrate everything that we just talked about? Here's the man who's casting the seed into the ground, and he does sleep, but he also rises night and day. He's working hard, he's laboring in the gospel, and he doesn't know how the seed is actually growing. And it's, and it's in some ways it's unrelated to his labors, but in other ways it's not. It's directly related. And he can see that his labor is causing the seed to grow, but he cannot see what is actually causing the seed to grow, which is the miraculous power of God. And so that laborer stands in awe, knowing that that would not have happened if he had not gone out and cast the seed and risen night and day to care for the seed in prayer and study of God's word, evangelism, and discipleship. But at the same same time knowing that his efforts are nothing without the miraculous power of God. How many farmers have died during famines having labored night and day only to have no crop come up? Without the power of God, there will be no crop. Mark one thirty five. here is Jesus Christ in the midst of his ministry, at the onset of his ministry. And it says here in verse 32, 132 of Mark, And at even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils, and all the city was gathered together at the door. That was as the, after the, or when the sun did set. So here he is starting a major work, as the sun sets in a city with the whole city gathered outside the doors, he's laboring night and day. And it says, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. And in the morning, verse 35, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Now we're going to move on for sake of time. I didn't even um, go into this more because a lot of this we've um, just ties in directly. This is the application, the time frame of the labor. The gospel labor is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week labor, which again, the Pharisees were offended because Christ labored on the Sabbath, and they were offended with that. And he said, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. Um, so thirdly, the, the reason for laboring night and day was to not be chargeable. Lord, help us today. We're already at an hour, and we've just begun to get into this stuff. Lord God, we've got so much here. Help me just to go quick, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So he says, we would not be chargeable for you. So first of all, there's two, there's two ways here that he would be chargeable. Um, the first that you would think of is financially, and we've studied that before in 1 Corinthians 9. We're just going to blitz over that. We're not even going to give it much time. And again, Paul did labor with his hands in some cases, 
and in others he did not. So um, don't go to seed on either way. Just mind God and be willing to do whatever it takes to get the gospel out. First Corinthians nine. Um, here he says, uh, verse six, where I only and Barnabas have not we power to forbear working. And here you can read it. I'm going to leave it to you to study it here. He says in first Corinthians nine, that if you are getting the gospel, that it's your responsibility to financially provide for those that are laboring in the gospel for you. Now, then Paul goes on and says that he would not be chargeable to them at Corinth, this very same church in chapter 11. He said that a dispensation of the gospel was committed unto him. That's 2 Corinthians 11. <coughs> Excuse me. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8. And he says here, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man for that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things, I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you. And so will I keep myself. So um, he was not chargeable to the church of Thessalonica, as we see in our text um, and he was not chargeable financially. He was only there three Sabbath days. And so he had doubtless had some finances in his pocket that God had given him, whether when he, as he went, when he got there before he left, but he had some money to go on. He also probably spent a great deal of time in fasting. And so when you're fasting and you're not eating, and especially in his case, as he didn't have a family to feed, his expenses go to nil. So isn't that handy? Isn't that handy for the true apostle who follows in fastings and watchings often? <clears throat> he can go to almost zero expenses for the sake of the gospel. Um, so there he says that he would not be chargeable to them. And he tells them in, um, Lord help us. We're not going to get into that right now. Back to our text. So the second part of chargeable here, the first part of being chargeable is financially. The second part is chargeable at the judgment day with slipshod gospel. And that would be like stolen sermons. Now there's a difference between getting an outline from somebody and studying out for yourself until God burns it in your heart and preaching it and just taking somebody's message and basically giving a verbatim copy of it without ever going to God for a message. That's a stolen sermon. Lazy less lessons, erroneous explanations, and prayerless, powerless preaching. All of this would make Paul chargeable to the Thessalonican church at the judgment seat. And he said, we were, uh, we were not chargeable to you. We would not be chargeable to you. So you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. So there's the finished package, the final word. Work, uh, whenever you look at a, at a field that's been plowed, it's been cultivated, it's been planted, it's been watered, and the, sh and the stalks are grown up, and there's fruit growing about ready to be harvested on that field, you are looking at the packaged, completed work of the gospel. And whenever you see that truck full of corn that's sitting there ready to be processed and to be eaten, and you see this root cellar full of finished corn products that are ready to be stored and laid up for the winter, you see the finished package of the gospel. And this is what most Christians want to see. Listen to me today, as I know we've gone over the, um, I don't know how customary it is, but the hour is what we kind of shoot for. It's usually way under or way over. But in any case... <coughs> As you see the finished package of the gospel, that's what most Christians want to see. But most Christians don't want to be involved in the labor of the gospel. And most Christians don't want to support those who labor in the gospel. They only want to support the finished package. And the finished package won't happen without the labor that won't be seen. How do you know somebody's real? You know it by their fruits, but the fruits take time. There's some people that can walk into a place and lead a hundred souls to Christ and that are legitimate conversions. And maybe God has sent that reaper, but for every reaper, there are many sowers and many waterers and many prayer warriors and many studiers. There's a labor in the gospel. There's in much in the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury, but in much, but in labor, in all labor, there is profit. God wants to call us to labor. Our pastor said last night, God's calling laborers to the harvest fields, not loafers. 
He's right. God wants laborers in his harvest fields. He wants those that will study. He wants those that will pray. He wants those that will go out in the highways and the byways and find people that won't be found otherwise. And he, oh, it's nice if they all come to your church. I agree. I'd way rather a thousand people show up at church saying, what must I do to be saved than to crawl around in the back roads risking dogs and angry homeowners and um, rocks and Turkeys, you ever been attacked by a turkey? Anyway, you didn't risk all these things attacking you, your guard turkeys and everything else. Laugh until you get attacked by one. Anyway, you can get attacked by all these things. And by the way, when you're preaching the gospel, the hardest part is that you don't want to hurt that person's animal for the sake of the gospel. So it's pretty hard to defend yourself against a turkey if it's their favorite pet turkey and you're trying to share the gospel with them. That's a story for another day. But anyway... Yeah, laugh all you want to. Have fun. In any case, most people don't want to go into the highways and the hedges. Most people don't want to go into the prayer closet, but that's what we're called to. And that's the burden of this message today. And that's what this message is calling the church of Jesus Christ to do, is to get in the saddle. Get busy. Get laboring for the gospel. Get involved in the labor of the gospel. You can get cheap results all you want with a cheap gospel. But if you want a gospel, the wheels will stay on when they open the package that won't leave them high and dry whenever their dad dies, their mom dies, their spouse leaves them, um, their buddy comes back and um, hates them for the gospel's sake and burns their house down over their head. If you want a gospel that's going to go with them, has some wheels on it to get down the road, it's going to take some labor in prayer and study of the, God's word and evangelism and discipleship until Christ be fully formed in these souls. Oh, I wish I could preach another 10 hours on this subject, but that'd just be talk of the lips that would tend to penury. It's time to get to work. Father, in Jesus' name, please take this uh, message, Lord. We've said enough. It's time to get to work. I pray that you'd put it in us, put it in our hearts to work, to labor, Father. Help us not to be slothful, Lord. We have an urgency. The night cometh when no man can work. Help us, Father, to labor and to be about our Father's business, to be found faithful when you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.